You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to the Living for the Max series. Over the past 45 years, there has been no other film franchise quite as inventive nor as consistently exciting as the Mad Max saga. Directed by Australian cinematic genius George Miller, they have each reflected his unique vision while also being hugely influential on pop culture, most specifically the action genre. Therefore, over the next several months, I will be revisiting each entry of this beloved franchise every month, leading up to the U.S. release of Furiosa, a Mad Max saga on May 24th. Mad Max, which came out in 1979 and was directed by George Miller. It stars Mel Gibson, Steve Bisley, Joanne Samuel, Hugh Keyes-Byrne, Tim Burns, and Roger Ward. The genre would be action thriller. Hey, Max, you little <laughs> punk. What's the matter? Are there too many of us for you? He was born to be a hero, knowing full well those who beat him as a child would grow up to be the killers of tomorrow, and he would grow up to blow their rotten heads off. American International presents Mad Max, a crazy cop caught in a crushing future. Mad Max, the maximum force in a world that's enough to drive anyone mad. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. It actually was not until recently that I watched the OG film in its entirety, which is strange because I've seen all the other rest of the Mad Max films so many times. And yeah, it's certainly lean and mean. It kind of almost feels like the goose played by Steve Bisley is the real star for the first half hour of the film. But that's okay, because there's plenty of Mel for the rest. And he's pretty great in this, generally underplaying but always committed, even elevating some borderline cheesy dialogue at points with his wife, Jessie, played winningly by Joanne Samuel. I reckon you ought to connect the doohickey to the gizmo. Come here, you. Oh, he's touching with those hands and I'll rip you apart. You no! Huh? No, look at them! Huh? No! Uh, no! Now, huh? No! It's a good, tight narrative about an ongoing war in headed towards dystopia Australia between a brutal motorcycle gang of marauders and leather-clad highway patrolmen who are still trying to keep the streets safe. Trying. All right, I'll tell you how it is. You're a winner, Max. You're on the top shelf. And I'm not going to lose you because of some crazy notion about quitting. They say people don't believe in heroes anymore. Well, damn them! You and me, Max. We're gonna give them back to heroes! Do you really expect me to go for that crap? You gotta admit, I sound good there for that, huh? Yeah. Bye, people. Max Rokotansky, played by Gibson, becomes our main protagonist as a family man, whose family becomes hunted by said marauders, led by Toe Cutter, played creepily by Hugh Keys Byrne. It's okay. Needless to say, almost all the action is on the road from the get-go, with lots of crashes and mayhem. Certain family members get brutally murdered around the hour mark, 
And then for the third act, we watch as Max goes mad. And that's pretty much all there is to it. But it's all very entertaining and engaging. The budgetary constraints are obvious at times, but director George Miller revels in the beef flavor and just makes the most out of everything, aided by a lot of next-level stunt work. I want to know what you're doing. The chain in those handcuffs is high tensile steel. It'll take you 10 minutes to hack through it with this. Now, if you're lucky, you can hack through your ankle in five minutes. Go. You're mad, man! And now to the categories. And because this is the Living for the Max series, the first category will be the Moment of Madness. From the get-go, the Mad Max series has become widely known for jaw-dropping action sequences, often made possible by death-defying stunt work. So the moment of madness would be the best demonstration of this for this particular entry in the Mad Max saga. So this is actually a pretty tough call as pretty much all roadway stunts were high risk for this production. There were several points where stunt drivers came dangerously close to severe injury or even death. But if I had to choose one filmed incident for the sheer volume of participants, it would be during the last 20 minutes in the early part of the climax as Max is in full-on rageful mad mode. He's on the road in his interceptor, and he catches up to most of the biker gang, having utilized some Fury Road-like acrobatics to siphon off gas from a fast-moving oil truck. He now has about six of them in his sights, each on their motorcycles. And as he barrels through their caravan on the highway, one of them scrapes off the road, now leaving five. He then races out several miles ahead of the rest, and then turns around and heads right back towards them, eventually reaching them on a bridge over a canal, pushing three of them right into the water, while the other one wipes out on the bridge. Max basically plays a multi-step game of chicken with this bunch and never flinches. It's pretty wild. The next category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. This film features a score very much of its time, very much akin to the sound of many of a 70s melodrama featuring a brass-heavy orchestra backed with aggressive percussion. Fast-paced and quite bombastic, you could easily mistake this music for the type of stuff that you would hear over a disaster movie from that era, along the lines of The Towering Inferno or one of the airport movies. And that's not a bad thing either, as this film is very much heightened melodrama. It works so well for maintaining the tone and tension of this movie that the composer was asked to return for the film's sequel, just a few years later. I'm, of course, referring to the late, great Brian May, straight out of Adelaide, South Australia. No, not the same Brian May from the band Queen, though they've often been confused for each other. No. 
It's hard for me to actually choose one highlight as most sections of the score kind of blend together. So why not the main title, which plays out over the opening credits? It opens quite bombastically as we first see that title, Mad Max, fly at the screen in shiny chrome lettering, as if to announce to the audience, get ready for a ride, indeed. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, since this film was an extremely low-budget affair for the time, costing roughly around $300,000 in American dollars, which was very low even for 79, there was no shortage of inventive cost-cutting measures involved, including several cast members wearing their own clothes, sequences shot in areas without permits, and some crew members even serving as free extras in some instances. And what you get on screen is undoubtedly impressive given those limitations. So you could easily point to this film's success as the direct opposite of wasted talent. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Okay, the opening 10 minutes of this movie is pretty wild, as it features a high-speed chase on the highway between the so-called good guys in uniform and the bad guys led by the Knight Rider. Hey, Sass, what's a form on this thing? A twist Viking, scoot jockey. A few hours ago, down in Sun City, he goes berserk. Breaks custody, waits a young primary, takes off on a pursuit special. We've been on him ever since. This one's right off the air, Roop. I've seen the style before. Terminal psychotic. <laughs> There's all this frenetic back and forth going on via CB radio. And what's also notable is that we notice this one mysterious figure amidst all this chaos. First getting ready, and then sitting in his car on the side of the road, listening to the situation, only we can't quite see who he is exactly. We just get glimpses from the back of his head, we close in on his driving gloves, or the reflection in his sunglasses, and then things escalate further as he not only hears on the radio that his fellow patrolmen are out of commission, we also hear this confident, now iconic declaration from the Knight Rider. I love this. I am the Knight Rider. <laughs> I'm a fuel-injected suicide machine. I am a We then not only hear this mysterious figure respond back on the radio, but he springs into action. The camera closes in on the ignition key being turned on, and then he's out on the road with the words in giant letters, Interceptor, emblazoned in white across the rear of his car. What then results is our mysterious hero challenging this Knight Rider to a head-to-head -head game of chicken. <laughs> Guess who flinches? Then we see him chasing right behind that villain, who then zooms out of control into a collection of gas tanks just off the road. Sure resulting in a giant explosion. And then we finally see our hero. 
Max. Walking out into the road, all clad in leather, taking off his sunglasses, and aghast at the big explosion which has just occurred. Now, it's not your typical hero's entrance, as it feels relatively low-key. But then again, Max was never the typical hero. And now the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. It's kind of amazing in retrospect that this was not just the feature debut for its director, but this was also just a few years into his second career, now in filmmaking. Before this, believe it or not, Miller had worked as a medical doctor for several years. Yeah, apparently he had a natural knack for not only staging action in advance, but also coordinating it with precision, real time, and with a camera. This film was a genuine phenomenon, grossing over $100 million worldwide, even if many initial reviews were mixed, calling it too violent and nihilistic. It was part of a burgeoning movement for Australian cinema, which also included the breakout of one of Miller's peers, and one of my favorite directors, the director of actually recent episode Master and Commander, Peter Weir. And since this film, Miller has just always been one of those guys with his own distinct vision. And eclectic, too. His filmography includes animated musicals featuring penguins, a sober true story medical drama about a child fighting a rare disease, and of course, more Mad Max movies. He's always been a tough one to categorize, but when you watch one of his movies, you can be sure that it will be visually distinctive, transporting you to a unique time and place. And he pulls that off here, resoundingly, even on a shoestring budget. Undoubtedly, he's helped by a bang-up leading performance from then 22-year-old Mel Gibson. But at the end of the day, for basically pioneering a relatively fresh new subgenre while telling a compelling human story, George Miller is the MVP. Described it like walking a really big dog. You want it to go that way and it drags you this way. And it was bewildering to me. Then the best and the worst things happened. We ran out of money uh, in post-production. So Byron cut the sound. He was. I had nine months, close to... Uh, a year in all, but I uh, had, had to drop it now and then. Confronting, you know, by, by myself in the kitchen where we were cutting, uh, all the mistakes I made. And it was a really great lesson because I thought, gee, you know, uh, I should have done that, I should have done this. And luckily, when the film came together, it did work. I mean, suddenly it gets shown in Japan and France and all around the world, and it's people saw something in it. I think it was because we had tapped into some archetype. My rating for Mad Max would be three and a half stars out of five. If I'm being honest, is this as impressive a film as the next three in the series? I mean, I even love Beyond Thunderdome. Well, probably not, but it still really works as a satisfying origin story for what would become a truly iconic character. And if you're looking to watch Mad Max, it is currently streaming at Hoopla, the Criterion Channel, Tubi, Canopy, and Pluto TV. And that ends another rocker, roller, out-of-controller review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.